Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. Well, hello there and welcome to another Senior Times Woman to Woman podcast with me, Marae Robinson. Now, we've been hearing from different women the stories of how their lives have unfolded, each one different, yet all totally fascinating and inspiring in their own ways. Now, you know that saying that behind every great man, there's a great woman. Well, my guest today totally fits into that category as the wife and partner of Michelin-starred celebrity chef, Derry Clark. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of chatting to Derry several times over the years on the Food and Wine series, but now it's my great pleasure to welcome to Woman to Woman, Sally Ann Parker-Clark. So thank you for taking the time out to chat today, Sally Ann. Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for that lovely introduction. And uh, yeah, I, I know they say behind every great man, there's a great woman, but Derry's also a strong man who is one of these men who's very appreciative of a strong woman. And I think that's very important to note oh, in especially yes. day and age. Yeah. So um, I think it's very important when you find a partner that it's somebody who lets you be yourself, that you sure. can, you know, and that you can do things together. Like we we've all we've been a great partnership, thank God. And um, especially for the latest venture, we come as a package. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think it's wonderful. I want to, I, I was actually thinking, you know, it's very difficult to, to be married to somebody and a business partner with somebody and you've got so much going on together. You know, it's, it can be difficult. I think it can be difficult. And I think you have to make it work if you want it to work. And I think sure. you have to set boundaries. And we did that fairly early on. Um, I suppose as well, we opened the business before we had children. So we had you know, lots of different things going on. And the other side of it is Derry's family were in business. My family were in business. So we kind of grew up with those parameters that already. In place. Sense, yeah. Yeah. So it, it made it made sense from our point of view. Um, and um, so, you know, um, I was born. So I, I hit the big six. So and um, when I was born in the 60s, things were uh, difficult, let's say, in Ireland. And my parents wanted to do things and go places and, you know, go, go and, and, you know, my mom always wanted to open a boutique. But in those days, when a, a lady got married, she had to give up her job. There was no choice. Right. And, um, and as soon as where did you live growing up? Were you Dublin based? Well, no, we were based in Chicago until I was nearly seven. Oh, were you? I didn't know that. Interesting. So my parents, my parents emigrated because they couldn't make the money they wanted to make here to do what they wanted to do. Sure. And my dad had two older brothers in Chicago who seemed to be doing very well and kept saying, why don't you come over? Why don't you this? Why don't you that? We'll find you a job. We'll help you find a place to live. We'll help you whatever. So I was, um, so I'm the oldest of six and we're the first four are September one year after the other. So when I was a year and a bit and my brother was only months old, they decided to emigrate to Chicago. Okay. So it was three blocks of apartments. So my uncle, Albert was in one, Uncle Godfrey was in another, and we were in the third one. And these were like three-story apartment buildings. There was one apartment on each on each floor. So the only cousins I knew growing up were the ones in Chicago. I didn't, that was my little world. I went to school there. 
that's where my friends were. That's where my parents were. And, um, you know, Christmas presents, Christmas parcels, uh, birthday parcels, different things would arrive from Ireland. And obviously in those days, there wasn't the same phone system. There wasn't the same connection. There was lots of letters. And we knew all these other aunts and uncles by name when the Christmas presents would arrive or the birthday yeah. presents would arrive or mom would be reading a letter and you'd see her kind of tearing up somebody else had died or somebody was sick or, you know, and I vaguely remember all those things because I was the oldest. Yes. Um, um, I mean, we had a wonderful life um, as far as I was concerned. I loved my school. I loved everything about it. But my mom's mom died when we were in, we weren't in Chicago very long and they literally couldn't afford to come home for the funeral. Oh, dear. So when my dad's mom took ill, my mom put him on a plane and sent him home. She said, you need to see your mom. You don't want to, you know, end up like me. And um, anyway, my grandmother's wish was to see. She'd seen myself and, and my brother, but she wanted to see the other two. So yes. they got on a plane. They came home. We arrived on a Tuesday. Granny Parker died on a Saturday. The funeral was the following Tuesday. And my mom decided we weren't going back. And that was how it happened. Wow. They saved enough money. They had done what they needed. And um, in the meantime, while they were here, mom was looking for premises and dad was helping her. And, you know, that, so that's what happened. And they wanted me to be here to make my first Holy Communion. And with four children, private schools in Chicago were very expensive. Um, yes. And if you wanted your child to go to a Catholic school, you really sure. needed them to go to a private school. So, so where did you where did you settle in Ireland when you came back from Chicago? In, uh, first of all, we lived with my grandpa grandparents for my grandfather for a while and then they bought a shop in on Crumlin Road all right so and she opened the boutique and she called it Sally Ann's Boutique and, oh, lovely. and myself and my sisters went to Loretto and my brothers went to Arts Galena across the road which which Loretto did you go to in Crumlin all right I went to Loretto and Dorky so there you are Oh, around, there around the same time, yeah. I still have some good pals that went to Dorky because in those days all the Loretto's did everything together they were great, yeah. Like, I mean, there were hockey matches and stuff between them and stuff like that. Well, between the hockey matches and the the, the music and the choir and the orchestra, yeah. and all of the debating teams and everything else that you did, you did it as a collective. Sure. And you debated against um, your your peers in Dorky or in Beaufort or in Matfarnham or in North Bay, Georgia Street or yeah. Belbriggan or wherever yeah. it happened to be. Yeah. So I there's think, girls who be my age. Got, yeah, I think we got a good education from the Retro Nuns, in fairness. Oh, well, I think we got a wonderful education. Yeah, I mean, me I, I still have the same pals I went to school with. I That's mean, great. my best friend for, from the time I was seven when I started school here yeah. is still my best friend today. And the other girls I have, I mean, obviously I've got some lovely friends, but a lot of my good pals are the girls I went to school with. Yeah. And we're all still in touch to this day. We were all away a couple of weeks ago, Marie, for our big 6-0. Oh, fabulous. I think yeah. it's great. I went to a couple of school reunions and um, it's so funny. You think, oh gosh, everyone's got so old. And then you think, I better look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've only ever gone to one school to reunion. Be, you know, people you knew when you were 10 and 15 and, you know, all that, all that stage, the teenage years and everything. Yeah, I've only gone to one now. I keep in touch with people who, you know, keep in touch with me and whatever. And we have a good, strong bond. There's 10 of us. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot when you think about it, when you think you're all sure. in, in school and secondary school together. And um, yeah, one, I've, I'm very lucky because a lot of people, if you can count your friends on one hand, I'm lucky I can count them on two. Well done. 
So tell me, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were in school, what did you think you were doing or what did you go on to study? Or Do you know, my parents were um, wonderful insofar as they, well, they're wonderful parents, but because my mom opened the shop and a, a lady opening up a shop on her own with her own ideas in 1969 without, um, like my dad was behind her um, and whatever she wanted to do. Um, and um, so we... I had a strong female role model and I also had the female role model that my dad was always supporting her. But when he decided he wanted to give up his job and open his own shop, she helped him do that as well. So I grew up thinking that I could do anything because that's what we were told we could do. We were always told that don't tell us you can't do something, go off and try. And then if you can't do it or you don't like it, we'll accept that. But you know, uh, can't was a word that we weren't allowed to use. No was something that was, you know, yeah. not, no is not acceptable. Go off and try, go off on this. They they did push us, um, but we didn't consider it pushy at the time. We yeah. just kind of encouraging. encouraging and they were opening up our horizons. And they basically told us that we could do anything we wanted to do. So as a result, Maraid, I, I was a pirate on the radio stations from the time I was 15. Did you? Yeah, I was in it for years and years in local radio. Um, when they eventually became legal and were offering people jobs, we'd already opened a restaurant and I would have been paying a babysitter more to um, to look after Sarah May than I would have been getting paid working. So I, I stuck with the restaurant and stuck with what we were doing. That was paying the bills. Um, my mother put me on a ramp when I was seven because she had the boutique. And she got involved in lots of fashion shows and lots of charity shows. So that was another avenue that I did for a long time. Um, and um, I used to think I'd like to be a teacher. And um, then I thought, no, I'd like to be some sort of um, entrepreneur. And I did the, I did a diploma in marketing and did the degree in marketing. And then I went on to do the insurance exams. And I was working in the insurance industry and I opened my own brokerage. So I had all that going on when I met Derry. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. Oh, well, I, w- I wanted to get to the romantic bit. So how did you meet Derry? I was 22 and the Westbury just opened. And I met this guy at a party who kept saying about, you know, um, going out and whatever and very nice man wasn't interested in him mm-hmm. and when he arrived up to the house one day and he said he was meeting his pals from work and his sister and her pal um, my dad said what harm could it do and he said this new hotel has just opened so I went in to meet them all that Sunday evening in the Westbury and who was his friend Barry and the rest is history <laughs> love at first sight well I don't know about love at first sight but we had great fun and um, we didn't go I didn't date him uh, um, originally for a couple of months we all just knew each other and uh, yeah. and then uh, two weeks after our first date he asked me to marry him and it was like oh go home <laughs> think about this my goodness yeah but that was, um, that was romantic so we got married two years later and we opened the restaurant 
18 months after that. So we got married in 87 and we opened the restaurant in... We That's the Crivan, you mean? Yes. Yeah. We, we got married in October 87 and we opened Le Crivan in July 1989. And um, from the moment I met Derry, his whole goal was to open up his own restaurant. Yes. And we looked at so many places and he had uh, one lovely Auntie Carrie who was very good to both of us. And she had a place in Dunleary where she was going to just give him the keys to open up. But as he said, it was the wrong, wrong place, wrong street, wrong whatever. And he was holding out for the right one. And mm-hmm. when the right one came along, you know, we, we knew it. And um, we said, OK, let's go. And, you know, in those days as well, the economy here wasn't great. The bank manager looked at both of us and he said, you've got a good job to dairy. He was head chef in the Bon Appetit, which was in the Lansdowne Hotel at the time. And I had a very good job. And he said, what are you two doing? Why would you leave your good jobs to go and open up a restaurant? And I said, well, this is his dream. And I said, if I can help, you know, that's basically it. It was a very brave thing to do, isn't it? Looking back, because, I mean, you were young. You were, you were young. To I was 26. Yeah, I was 26. He was uh, he was nearly 31. And um, it was... Um, um, he was 31, but it, it, maybe it was brave, maybe it was silly, but it was a dream that he had. And it was one that I wanted to help him achieve because he was a wonderful chef then. He's still a wonderful chef now. Mm-hmm. And it was something he always wanted to do. And again, Derry's father was a fruit import, was a food importer. Oh, yes. Um, it was John, John Clark and Sons. And like Derry's father brought in um, escargot. He brought in, um, he had um, agencies for um, primrose hams and for we'll say all the the jolly green giant stuff he used to bring in foie gras and Derry always tells the story when he was helping his father out during the summers that um, they were called down to the docks and a large wheel of blue cheese was impounded by the customs here because it was mouldy and they weren't letting it in (laughs) (laughs) they weren't letting it in and no way were they letting it in so he grew up in the food trade because his mother's family were um fruit importers yes and um so he had all of these things in his house so being a chef for him was the most natural thing in the world um and he had access i mean as he said he grew up eating foie gras and snails and blue cheese and all the different things his father had opened one of the first delis in ireland called farm produce and he, he grew up with all of this and as i say they were in the wholesale trade so for him opening up his own restaurant was something that from the moment I met him, he'd always spoken about. And I thought, well, you know what? If that's what you want to do, that's what we'll do. And did you um, did you do front of house from the beginning? No, I used to go over in the evenings. I kept my job. I had a very good job at the time. And um, as I said, I had my little brokerage and I used to go over every evening just to help out. And what happened was we had problems with the maitre d', somebody that he was told not to employ, somebody that he was had worked with himself, but he was... He was warned that, you know, different things could happen. And when it did happen, um, Derry said, what am I going to do? And I, you know, he said, will you step in? And I said, yeah, I'll step in. But I said, you know, give it six months. And I said, we'll look for somebody and we'll we'll see what's out there. And um, we had a very good crew, even those days. Um, we had Ray Hingston as our manager. And um, we're still very good pals with Ray to this day. And um, Derry, we discovered that, Obviously, because of my parents being shopkeepers and all the rest, that I could deal with the public. I could adapt. I could whatever. I learned very quickly on my feet and I discovered and he discovered, which is even more important, that I was actually quite good at it. So he said, why would I pay somebody when you can do it? (laughs) 
Um, so a six month uh, sojourn turned into a 30 odd year uh, job in Le Crivan doing front of house. So uh, how long after opening did you do front of house? Like, was it a few years? Well, no, six months. Oh, it was only a few months. months. It was only a few months. Yeah. Like I'd been there every evening in the beginning because True. I had never really worked in a restaurant. Uh, I'd only been in one as a paying customer. And there were times Derry worked in other jobs where he'd call me and say, somebody hasn't turned in, somebody's whatever, would he give us a hand? And I'd say, absolutely, I'd be, you know, in the car and I'd go in and give them a hand. But my job when he opened up first was to balance the books. And, um, you know, when when they weren't balancing and we saw what was going wrong, it was time to remedy it as quickly as possible. And um, that's what happened. So I accidentally fell into being front of house in Lecrigan and I loved every minute of it, I have to be honest. Well, I actually had the pleasure of, of dining there years ago with my daughter. I think it was I think it was a fr- for Food and Wine magazine at the time. But I remember you were front of house and you were very helpful and very friendly and super efficient. Tell me now, you look after the wine list. Where did your interest in wine come from? Or did that just develop slowly or did you do a course? Um, I did a few courses, um, but I I think it developed insofar as that I always liked a glass of wine. I'm not a spirit girl. I mean, when I started out on the social scene in Dublin, all you could get was the Leap Bramage, Black Tower, Berwick Brunk. And I mean, I remember my parents used to have Blue Nun. And I remember somebody would have a glass of wine and the cork would be put in it. And it could be in that cabinet for months at a time. And then you'd open it. Oh, my goodness. Yuck. Yeah. Um, it was like the sherry and the port and the brandy. Yes. Remember, every house had a cocktail cabinet. Yeah, and, yeah we uh, had one. We had one, yes. yes. My yeah. father's Very pride nice. and joy. <laughs> there you go. And my parents would open this beautiful cabinet out and yes. they'd have all these bottles in it. But I was never a spirit girl. I always liked a glass of wine or a glass of bubbly or whatever. Yeah. And um, when we opened the restaurant and we got on to... Um, Tom Keaveney was the head man in... Um, Gilby's, as it was in those days, it's now Diageo. And um, I remember calling Tom and saying to him, we're opening up. And he said, I'll send you down somebody. Uh, do, tell me whatever you need. He was very, very helpful. And he sent us down a rep. And the rep said, you know, what do you know? I said, absolutely nothing. Yeah. And he said, you know you like? you know? yes. And his, um, Tom Keaveney's advice was, he said, everybody is their own expert because he said they know what they like exactly the secret to a good wine list he said is having wines on your list that not only that you like that you can sell that you think other people will like and I've carried that through with me all all these years and um I'm sure you get asked a lot about pairing food and wine like what wine you'd recommend to go with whatever people were ordering I do and then people say oh you know and it's like when we would do tasting menus in in Ecrivan and we would have the white to go with different ones and the red to go with different wines and people say I don't drink red wines or I don't drink white wines and or other people say I don't drink wine I only drink beer so that was another um, experience that we were able to pair up food not just with wines but with beer or with whiskies or with you know different that's things. interesting it's it's because everything has evolved. It's like I think the nicest thing to have with a chocolate dessert is a tawny port, mm. where somebody else might like a sweet sweet wine, white wine, or or a sweet red wine. You know, so there's different things that I like that I would say try it. If you don't like it, we'll change it. Yeah. And half of the fun with the wine list is actually educating people. It's like we have some gorgeous wines on the list in in the club of Goffs, and um, I'm not a big fan of Pinot Grigio. But we have an absolutely delicious Slovenian wine from um, that's a Pinot Gris. And when you say to people, try it, if you don't like it, we sell it by the glass. 
we celebrate whatever, not a problem. Everybody's kind of going, oh my God, A, I didn't know Slovenia did such nice wines and B, I didn't realize a Pinot Gris was just as nice as a Pinot Grigio. Mm. So there's a little bit of, that's just one example. It's like people say anything but Chardonnay. And we have a lovely French Chardonnay on the list that's unoaked. And when people taste it, they go, that's a Chardonnay. And I say, yeah. So it's part of the, um, you're educating people as well. You're teaching them about your list and you're imparting to them your enthusiasm and why you chose that particular wine. And people love that too. So as I say, you don't have to have a a, a diploma or a degree in, in, you know, or a, a, what would you say, an accredited wine, wine course to actually be able to. No, you don't need to be a master of wine. No, no, definitely not. But it's, again, it's a very eclectic list, but we've tried to put something on it for everybody. And so far, so good. I think if you have a good list of um, a good amount of wines by the glass, it's always helpful because people can, um, you know, chance a glass rather than ordering a bottle and then thinking it wasn't really what they wanted. Well, this is what we do. We've got a lot of wines by the glass on the list. And then if something else comes up that we get to taste one of the great ways of testing wine is putting it on by the glass and then if you like it you know if it's going to sell by the bottle or not so it's it's um but it's it's all a learning curve because you know things change regularly people's tastes change and people's there's there's always little trends like summertime now uh roses are always very popular yeah and one of the things that we've done out in the club is we've got a non-alcoholic selection because it is um that's become very popular yeah well it, you, you have somebody has to drive if, if you're yeah. not local and you need to get a taxi so yeah. um a lot of the lovely non-alcoholic wines now are actually made in the same way as wines and they're put into a diffuser and the alcohol is extracted but it's just the alcohol that's extracted, not the taste, not the it's quality. Still got the flavors, yeah. Yeah, you've still got all the flavors. Now, the only thing is, I haven't really come across a nice red one, but the whites and the rosés are lovely. Mm-hmm. And we have a lovely uh, no secco, which we call it. It's called naughty, so it's zero point zero percent, which all of them are. And we do it in a rosé and a regular prosecco. And a lot of people really can't even tell the difference that the fact that there is no alcohol in it, but they oh, feel like right. they're having a drink. Yeah. So when I had my family in a couple of weeks after we opened and I'm working and I'm driving and I'm doing whatever, I had a couple of glasses of the, the naughty and I felt like I'd had a drink with them, but I was perfectly uh, capable of getting sure. in the car and driving everybody home. Um, were you sad when Le Crivan closed or was it yeah. a relief or because you were no. a long time there and a long time we were Michelin star? We 32 years in Baggett Street. Yeah. And we had the star for 22, 23 years. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, but Derry wanted to do something um, more casual. He felt that dining had become much more casual and that people didn't, I mean, we always did an a la carte menu with our tasting menus, but a lot of Michelin star restaurants these days are only doing tasting menus, they're only doing, and if you want to be open for everything, like we did a lot of regular customers and the good thing about it was um, as they got older, their children started coming into us. Yes. And it was really nice that the second generation were felt as at home in Le Crivan as the previous generation did. And um, but it was corporate Monday th- to Thursday and then Friday and Saturday. It was usually an occasion. Yeah. And um, which was lovely. And we were very happy. But he always wanted to do something more casual. So the food that he's doing now. I think it was in touch with the with the feeling of the time. People now want more relaxed dining and maybe um, maybe slightly healthier dining or smaller, like 
you know, ordering a couple of starters, for example, as opposed to, you know, big main courses and heavy sauces and things. Well, this is it. And the whole the whole concept of sharing plates came out. Oh, yes. And obviously tapas bars were very popular. And Absolutely. They, we would we would look at, at business during the week and see that people would be, um, you know, they would put a couple of starters in the middle of the table. And what would you call almost like Chinese style? Everybody would help themselves. Everybody yeah, would yeah. do whatever. And an opportunity came up in Temple Bar, which unfortunately during COVID didn't happen. But um, this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to do something more casual. And the kind of food he wanted to do, we would not have been able to do in Le Crivan and keep our star. No, no. So, and as he always said, he wanted a last hurrah before he hangs up his yeah. um, apron or his tweezers or he got a he he got some stick over the fact that they, you know, chefs, when you're in that sort of fine dining, they have a whole range of different sized tweezers, which is, you know, it's part of it's it's part of their uh, toolkit, for want of a better word. Um, and a lot of people were asking him when we were opening up in Goffs, was he bringing his tweezer kit with him? And he went, no, 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 no. So um, it was something, again, that he'd always wanted to do, something that, and um, we thought that it was going to happen in town and it didn't. And you know what they say, if what's for you won't pass you by. It's, so um, we did the festivals during the during COVID at uh, Palmerston House and we had a ball. We had so much fun. We were feeding 500 people every session. And we were doing casual food. Yes. And then there was a couple of different opportunities came up. And then we got a phone call about the club at Goss. And it's 20 minutes away from where we live. We felt it was a good fit. We we know the guys. And we thought, you know what? This is what he wanted to do. He already had the menu done in his head long before we ever signed the contract. And um, three and a half months in, it's going very well, thank God. Is it? I think it's wonderful to be able to uh, work and live in close, close proximity. Like you don't have to commute in and out of town all the time and you're in a more more rural environment, which is relaxing too, isn't it? Less kind of uh, traffic jams and all that. Uh, yes, it's um, we're not really subject to traffic jams, which is great because it's on the N7 and out. Yeah. Um, and so whatever whatever's happening we're 20 minutes door door to door which is fantastic that's fabulous yeah that, 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 that's um, what i mean that takes a yeah. lot of the stress out it's really wonderful and it also means if you're needed in a hurry you can get there in a hurry but the other side of it is that the guys invited us in to be the front of it we're really enjoying what we're doing so he's in the kitchen i'm in the front of house and um we're obviously running it like it's our own place but we don't have the same um what would you say, uh, pressures, it's, yes. it's, it's different pressures, but we don't have to worry about the salaries. We don't have to worry about the the suppliers. We don't have to worry about the rent and the rates and the yes. energy bills. Um, and we're getting a salary and we're really enjoying what we're doing. And I think at this stage of our lives, we're able to go in and we're able to do what we love doing and not have the pressures that all of these people in there are dependent on us, like we did all those years in Ecrevan. I think that's absolutely excellent. I suppose we could finish there on that note. That's a good um, That's a good way to finish. So it's been an amazing career, really, cul culinary career for the two of you. And, and I think it's a wonderful story. And um, I wish you the very, very best in Goffs. I'm sure it's uh, going to be extremely successful. It's looking good anyway. You've got a good mixed clientele there, haven't you? 
we've got a well obviously we're on the we're on Goff's land and yes. so we get people from all walks of life there's actually an underpass that a lot of people come under from kill so we're getting oh. a lot of locals so they don't have to get a taxi um oh. and the food is going the, the menu's going down a treat and again everything's evolving the menu's evolving the wine list is evolving and it's like everything else when you open up something new you have to see what people want and you have to adapt and you have to see you know and that will that will still happen we're three and a half months in and we hit the ground running and yeah. it's just it's you know it's great to be back it's great to be relevant it's great to be it's great to be involved and you know we always liked working with younger people and kind of bringing them along I mean look at all the wonderful chefs that have gone on to do fantastic things that that were in our kitchen for years you've got um, Anna Hawk and Patrick Powell are two of the hottest chefs in London at the moment. And then you've got all the chefs here in Ireland that worked um, in the kitchen of dairy that have gone on to do their own thing. And yeah. it's fantastic because we felt like they were they were our children as well. Very, yes. very proud of them all. And I mean, not just the chefs, but all the different um, waiters and managers that went on to do their own thing. We're all very proud of them. It was like, you know, we we were part of their journey and uh, it was great that they we gave them the confidence that they could go on and do their own thing and it was like we can do it guys you can do it excellent well i think it's a great story i i really do and i'm delighted that you're doing what you're doing um and um people living up and around there are very fortunate to have that on their doorstep well, so thank thanks great. so much for talking to me today sally ann and i My wish pleasure, you the very very best for the future and thank you for having me okay thanks a million bye-bye Will phone poke a newowet, on will knappy no fum nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj, faker no phone in takata gwin, on show, egg daro, on von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina, tarod egen gogachtina, tanismo olis egg daro.com.